Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including life groups, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Brian Candelo. Good morning, church. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It's good to see you here this morning. Has anyone ever told you to grow up? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Usually it's said with contempt, right? You can kind of hear it. Grow up. And really, when someone says that to you, it's, it's kind of maybe a slightly disrespectful call to maturity. It's a call to, to think, to stop focusing on yourself, to make better decisions, to look further into the future than just the next five minutes. And it may come as a surprise to some of you in the room, but I've been on the receiving end of that phrase numerous times. <laughs> Exactly. Deservedly so, of course. Um, Usually, when I'm prepping a sermon, I spend a lot of time trying to think of what the perfect story will be to illustrate the main point, the story that's going to send us in a specific direction. And as I was thinking about this topic, grow up, it wasn't so much that I struggled to find a story. It was more like I struggled to kind of narrow down the stories. And it also brought me to a moment of thankfulness that most of my stories didn't happen in the age of cell phone cameras, so there's really no proof for a lot of what I'm about to tell you. When I was in elementary school, we took a field trip to the zoo, and I'm standing at the railing of the bear enclosure, and I have a buddy of mine next to me, and there's some adults just kind of interspersed down the railing, and and the bears are doing what they always do at the zoo, nothing. They're just laying there. They, they might not even be real for all that we know. They could be animatronic bears, but that's just how it is. They're sleeping. And my buddy opens his backpack, and he pulls out a huge bag of marshmallows. And he looks at me, and he says, bears love marshmallows. Now, I don't know how he knew that, but who was I to argue with such a factual and authoritative statement like that? So each of us grabbed a marshmallow, and we threw it into the bear enclosure in such a way as to wake up the bears. Now, I can tell you on firsthand experience, bears love marshmallows. <laughs> they just kind of woke up. There was this renewed excitement. And the adults that were standing at the rail were looking at us disapprovingly, and yet they kind of enjoyed the show that was going on. And so we kept throwing marshmallows into the Enclosure, one after another after another, and the bears were loving it, and when we walked away, we knew that good had been done. (laughs) About 30 minutes later, we're walking back past the bear enclosure, and we notice that the railing is full of people. It's lined up too deep, and so we kind of sneak over to the edge, and we look in, and we see that the bears are losing the contents of their stomach. There's marshmallow fluff everywhere, and everybody's wondering what's going on as we slowly back away and hide in the reptile exhibit for the rest of the day. (laughs) Hurling marshmallows and making bears sick. Grow up. The story of my life. 
grow up. It's just one in a line of many examples. My life was and continues to be a move from immaturity towards maturity. And I think that's really a posture that all of us need to take. In particular, as disciples of Jesus, we need to continue to have this mindset where we're moving from immaturity to maturity. And maturity being more like our big brother Jesus, being conformed to the character of Christ. And so we're gonna talk about that this morning. We're gonna focus on one idea that maybe we don't always link to maturity, but I think we'll see it in our text. And we're gonna look at this idea here that the opposite of maturity isn't immaturity, it's disunity. As we read our text today, we're gonna see that the opposite of maturity isn't immaturity, it's disunity. Our pursuit of unity is tied to our maturity. Those things are inseparable. They're salt and pepper. They're mac and cheese. They're peanut butter and jelly. They're tacos and Tuesdays for some reason. We're gonna talk about maturity and immaturity. Now, when I mentioned to one of our RTI students, uh, the one that was up here playing guitar, uh, when I mentioned to him that I got to preach on maturity and immaturity, he said, you're the perfect preacher for that topic. (laughs) Which hurt a little bit, as the truth often does. So I deducted points from his grade and we moved up. We're continuing on in our series in the book of Ephesians, and last week Rob preached on unity. And this week we're going to talk about unity. It's really just a continuation of his message. I thought about preaching the same message and just changing the illustrations, but I didn't do that. But it is the same message, and he had this idea. The unity of the church is our ultimate testimony. Not the uniformity of the church, but the unity of the church is our ultimate testimony. And we're just going to continue to walk into that truth. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be starting in verse 1. And this is kind of, we've reached a hinge point in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3, that's our orthodoxy. Chapters 4 to 6, that's the orthopraxis. So we have our doctrine and we have our practice. Chapters one to three are about the gospel story. Four to six are about our part of the story, the part that we get to play. It's really a call for us to live differently because we've been renewed and restored and redeemed. So starting in verse one, it says, therefore I a prisoner for serving the Lord. And he mentions this again. He mentioned at the beginning of chapter three, and he's not flexing on us. What he's really saying is there's an urgency to what I'm saying. A prisoner for the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. And then it comes to a portion where it talks about gifts given to the church, gifts given to us so that we can bless the church and we can unite the church. And quite honestly, we preached on this in the not too distant past. And so we're going to kind of jump over that. Just know that those gifts were given to build up the church and to bring unity. And then verse 13 says, this will continue 
until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. This will happen so that we can become unified and be mature. Now, some translations, instead of mature, they use the word perfect, or they use the word complete. But what it really means is it's going through the necessary steps, going through the necessary stages to reach our end goal. And our end goal is to be more like Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. And this maturity that Paul is talking about here has become a major focus in his life. He's really concerned about all of our maturity. Colossians chapter one says this, he is the one we proclaim, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He wants to present everyone fully mature, and so he's strenuously working toward that goal, and that's the goal we're working towards today. This morning, I want to paint two pictures. The first picture is a picture of immaturity that leads to disunity, because we have a negative picture in this passage. And the second picture I want to paint is a picture of maturity that leads to unity. And so first, we will focus on the negative before we look at the positive. And we see it in the verse following the one that I just paused on. So verse 14 says, then we will no longer, so after we reach maturity, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching, and we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. The first thing, we will no longer be immature like children. Children are beautiful, and they're wonderful. They just haven't grown up into maturity yet, and neither have some adults. I have a friend who used to tell me, you're only young once, but you can be immature your whole life. And I used to think that was the goal. Like, that's, oh, that's what I'm going to do then. That sounds like a great goal. But that's not the great way to live. Now, typically, children have a tendency towards selfishness. They, they take more than they give. They're mostly concerned with meeting their own needs and not the needs of others around them. They're mostly concerned with what's going on right now and not anything into the future, which is why we have to teach children that the world is bigger than them. We have to teach children about other people. We have to tell children that, that you know, it's not all about you. It's why we have to teach children to share. I can remember teaching uh, one of my daughters to share. This is a great concept and giving you the word share. Here's how you say it, share. She was very young. And she mostly loved to use the word share when someone else had something that she wanted. She turned share into being selfish. And, and quite honestly, that's what we do. And all of us do it. All of us are immature like children. Paul, even in this verse, uses we language. He includes himself in this. Then we will no longer be. He's not saying you at this point. He's saying all of us. And I love this. I love that Paul had moments of spiritual immaturity. I love that Paul is admitting here, yeah, I'm not perfect. I fail sometimes. If there's a, a sliding scale of immaturity, all of us are on it at some point. And sure, if the cross is over there, admittedly, I'm over here somewhere. 
Somewhere right about here, let's say. Not all the way over here, guys, but somewhere here. And on the other side, you know, we have Paul and we've got St. Barb. She's way over there on the other side of that. She's so embarrassed right now. Right there on the other side of this sliding scale of immaturity. And I'll let you decide where you think Rob fits on this scale. I will submit this picture to you as proof that... I'm not sure what he's doing there. Kids, don't try this at home. But I show you this picture to really say that he's probably closer to my end than St. Barb's end, don't you think? He might even be a little, no, we don't know, we don't know. But we shouldn't be surprised at the immaturity of other people because we know ourselves and we know the way we live. We know that sometimes we're the ones hurling marshmallows and making the bear sick. That's just who we are sometimes. Sometimes we can be self-centered. Sometimes we can think that this movie of the life that we live in is all about us, right? I'm the star of the movie, and all of you are just extras in my movie. And you're doing a great job. Thanks for playing your parts really well. But I can kind of come about this because I feel like the camera always follows me and the rest of you just kind of come in and out of my story and I can think that I'm the star and so I can be selfish and I can take more than I give and I can be more concerned about meeting my own needs than other people's needs and I can want what I want right now. And when we're immature like children, unity starts to take a back seat. The second thing in that verse said, tossed and blown about by every new teaching. And that phrase really is just from a single word used to describe raging waters or the surge of the sea. And I think more vividly translated, what it means is world about until you get dizzy. And so he's saying, tossed and blown about by every new teaching is like, how many of you have ever ridden the teacups at Disneyland? Yeah? How many of you liked it? I don't, why? But this is kind of what he's saying. He's saying, like, world about by the teacups of every new teaching. Paul's describing people who don't have deep roots, who aren't grounded in Scripture, who quite honestly go from board to board, from one boring thing to the next boring thing. It's, he's speaking of, like, the unsteady and, and the rudderless who get sidetracked from the way. And if we're honest, we, we love the new as well. We love the new trends. Sometimes we think a message is only, you know, truly deep if it tells us something that we never knew before, if it gives us some new trend, but then the trend becomes more influential than the infinite scripture. We're really good at taking second-tier issues and making them first-tier issues or bringing things way in from the peripheral and putting them at the center because it seems new and it seems different and it's something we haven't heard before, but the trends can push us off course into fractured communities. And we have to be cautious. And lastly, he says, which is similar to the one, he says, tricked by clever lies that sound like the truth. It's just indicating a lack of discernment. It's people who just, in some sense, swallow everything that sounds true. You know, if you think of immature like children, babies, you have to be so careful because they put everything in their mouths, right? They're always trying to swallow everything, and and some adults are that way as well. As a kid, I remember being scared by a lot of things that sounded true. Like if you swallow your gum, it takes seven years to digest in your stomach. Or 
we're switching to the metric system. Remember that lie that we were told as kids? We're switching to the metric system. Or if you drink Pepsi and Pop Rocks like Mikey did, that's it. Or that in our sleep, we swallow four spiders a year. All of these things that sounded true to me, they're not true. There's no truth in these things, and yet we're tricked by clever lies that sound like the truth. As adults, it's the same way, and maybe, maybe it's the news on both ends of the spectrum. Maybe those are the things that are tricking us, and what happens is we're led into the extremes, and when we're led into the extremes, we're led away from unity. Each of these three things divides and fractures community, and yet they're indicative of the world that we live in. And we want to use them to draw lines about things that may have some importance but might not have any significance in light of eternity. And so rather than pursue unity, our posture is one of of relegation and rebuke. And we can drag these three things even into our church setting. We can view church in some ways like it's a club. You know, we join, we pay our dues, and we wonder what we're going to get out of it, but we know in the back of our minds that if someone offends us, or if there's something that we don't exactly like, or if we're displeased in some way, we can step out of the church here and maybe step out of the church altogether. But church family, I want to remind us that a union with Jesus is a union with his family. A union with God is a union with his children. That's why that passage says there's one body, one spirit, one hope. It's why we say around here that that we're owners and not renters, that we're partners in this ministry. We're not just members. And we don't want to be immature at the sake of unity. And so that's the negative picture. But we also have a positive picture. We have a picture of things that we should be leaning into. And it's a picture of things that we pursue so that we can be unified, so that we can grow in maturity. There's postures and there's practices in verse two. And so we wanna look at verse two. And as we look at these four things, I want us to ask ourselves, these are kind of the things that we wanna walk away with. How am I putting these things into practice? Would these words be used to describe my life? And maybe that's a question that you ask someone that you're close to. These four things, do you think I'm living into these things? So uh, verse two says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. The first thing we see is humility. Now, in the Greek culture of the New Testament, humility would have been a negative attribute. It would indicate dishonor. To the Greeks, humility was not a virtue. And that idea has continued on. Some of our modern philosophers would say the same thing. For instance, Nietzsche says this, humility is twisted into a virtue as a defense mechanism against strong and hardworking people. He saw humility as a barrier to human progress, a form of self-protection for the weak and the mediocre. Ouch. A form of self-protection for the weak and the mediocre. And yet, sometimes I think we believe this idea that if we want to live life to the fullest, there isn't a bunch of room for humility in our lives. 
That humility might have its place somewhere, but if we want to move forward, humility has to move backward. I think the cultural symbol for us pushing humility to the side is the praise me pose in football. You've seen it, right? If you've watched professional football, you've seen men who are paid an obscene amount of money to do their job. And when they do their job, like tackling somebody, which seems pretty low level on their job description, they pop up and they do this. And I'm always like, that's your job. What are you doing? I can't imagine how this would play out in the rest of life. You close the business deal. You, you cook the perfect dinner. You go to the grocery store with the list, get everything, and you don't even have to call your wife once. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of how we feel, and yet, we don't do this on the outside, but I think on the inside, at least we're like, come on, look at me, but Jesus brings humility to the forefront. He makes it a virtue. Philippians chapter two shows us how Jesus models humility. It shows us how he didn't care for his reputation as much as he cared for us. The cross shows us that that he got what we deserved so that we could get what he deserved. And so when we recognize this sacrifice he made, when we begin to understand the holiness of God, when we in some way comprehend his bigness, we can't help but be overwhelmed by our smallness. Now hear me when I say that. I didn't say insignificance. I didn't say worthlessness. We have tremendous worth. We are tremendously significant. But sometimes we need to understand our place, our smallness, We don't know everything. We aren't always right. We're not perfect. We don't understand everything in everybody's story. And we need to have a posture of humility that leads to unity. Humble people have a way of creating community, of bringing people around them. And it's followed up, humility is followed up by gentleness, which is sometimes written as meekness. This is a step beyond the posture of humility into a practice. And I don't know if you read it that way, but that's the way it's intended in this passage. That gentleness is kind of the hands and feet of humility. The words used for an animal that's disciplined or controlled, it's really this idea of a service animal that will do whatever it takes to help its master. It means just being absorbed in seeking the good for other people in a way that doesn't get deterred when insults come. It means not being easily offended. It means that our personal considerations become secondary as we serve other people. About a week or so ago, I had the opportunity to be in Kosovo with our RTI students, and we were visiting the Cathedral of St. Mother Teresa. Now, she's not from Kosovo, but she's Albanian, and so it seems as if pretty much everybody in the region has claimed her as their own. And so they built this cathedral there uh, with her name on it to honor her. It's a beautiful space. And it kind of got me a little bit reading about her life again, about her amazing humility and gentleness about the work that she did. And I think sometimes we can just be in absolute awe of Mother Teresa. She seems like one of those untouchable things that we'll never attain, like I can't do that. And yet she didn't talk so much about doing great things. She talked about doing small things with great love. 
Just doing the small things with this great love. I also, as I was reading, I kept bumping into articles that were criticisms, if you can imagine. And maybe I shouldn't be shocked at the internet anymore, but there's just a lot of people heaping a lot of hate on her for various things. So I wanted to read a couple of those, and and what I kept finding was that she was undeterred. She knew about all of these things. And at the end of one of these articles, um, after someone piled on pretty heavily, they did say, I just want to acknowledge, however, the power that she created through her love and humility. After all the criticism, they still said, yeah, but there, there was something there. There was a power there. Something was going on in her life. Her humility, her gentleness, her love, it was making a difference. For as much as I have against that, that was powerful. And she was undeterred. She was not responding to the criticism. She was continuing to do the work that was set before her. And that's the next word in that verse. It was patience. We usually think patience is this steadfast endurance. But really, it just means not retaliating when you've been wronged. Patience is not retaliating when something's happened against us. And it's used of God's patience with us. Romans chapter two, beautiful verse. Verse four, it says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? God has been kind to us and patient to us. And it's his kindness that's intended to turn us towards him. It's his kindness that's intended to bring us into this unity with him. And so why would we think that there's another way to bring other people to him? It's kindness. It's patience. And the last word in verse two is is forbearance. It says making allowance for others' faults, but it's the word's forbearance. We don't use that enough, but it's just the practical outworking of patience. It means bearing with one another's weaknesses. It means continuing to love family and and neighbors and church family when um, their faults are evident or, or their beliefs offend us. We continue to love it. It means meeting acts of angst and anger with kindness and love. You see, this is the picture we have of maturity. This is the picture we have of a maturity that leads us into unity because these things are others-focused. These things draw more circles than they draw lines. They, They build bigger tables, not higher fences. We're bringing people in. That's the picture of what we want to lean into. Now, it's been two weeks of unity, and you might find yourself asking a question, right? Unity, yes. I'm all for unity. Maturity, maybe. You haven't sold me on maturity yet. But what about truth? What about the important issues? How will people know what we stand for? And I think those are good, fair questions. And I would say this, firstly, they'll know that we stand for love, and I think that's really important. But also it says in verse 15, after we get through this passage about what it looks like to be mature, what it looks like to be immature, how we're supposed to be drawn together in unity, and then it says, now we can speak the truth in love. And I think this is a passage that a lot of people who have been around church for a while know. 
Yeah, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. And when we say that, we usually have a pretty heavy emphasis on the truth piece of that. Yep, they got to hear the truth. They got to hear the truth. And yes, we need both of these things. We need to speak the truth in love. Both of those things are important. Truth without love is cold. It's abrasive. It hardens hearts. It's, as scripture says, it's just noise. Truth without love is just noise. And love without truth, it doesn't foster growth. It doesn't lead to maturity. And so when we're living as mature Christians, when we're pursuing unity, we have a platform for sharing this truth. Other people are more able to hear us. You see, our doctrine can handle our pursuit of unity. Our orthodoxy remains unchanged. In church family, I truly believe that the things that bind us together, that tie us together, are greater than the things that would divide us. The ultimate example of truth and love is the cross. I want us to just think about this in closing. Think about the truth of the cross as it relates to us. The truth of the cross as it relates to us is that we're pretty broken, that we desperately need help, that all of our efforts to save ourselves don't amount to anything. The truth of the cross is that something radical had to be done on our behalf. And if we really think about those truths, they can be hard to handle. Those are difficult truths if we really think about it. But the other piece of the cross is the love that was shown there. The undeserved, life-shattering, everlasting love that was shown to us on the cross, the love of a savior who sacrificed himself so that we could be free, the love that allows us to be unified in his family. And so church family, I would just ask us this question. Like Jesus, are we sacrificially loving and serving those who need his truth? Is this how we're approaching it? Is this how we're seeking unity? There is truth, but are we serving and loving and sacrificing ourselves to bring people into the family? We don't just vaguely tolerate one another. We're called to love one another. We don't just hurl marshmallows at people and make them sick. May we grow up in unity and maturity as we are continually conformed to the character of Christ. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage in scripture. And we thank you for your example. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. And and just genuinely today, we want to say thanks. Thanks for being full of love and truth. Thanks for leading the way. Thanks for modeling well. And I pray that you would continue to call us into this, that you would continue to call us into modeling what it looks like to live this way, that you would show us that all of our small acts, all of our seemingly insignificant acts of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance bring unity to your kingdom are truly important. Jesus, we just want to be more like you, and so I pray that you would show us how to do that. 
And it's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.